finding your own voice, speaking your own, being who you really are. That is a constant that's very rewarding and it feels great when you can do it. Even in the moment, as we're talking now, I'm trying to really speak from the heart, you know, and really not rehearse anything or anything like that. That does recede, doesn't so much recede as the more you come from your own self and your own true being, the more of yourself you discover and the more there is to learn. I think really that's what life is about, at least on an, on an individual level. We start out when we're young imitating other people. And we think, oh, if I could only shoot a jump shot like Michael Jordan, or if I could only speak like Malcolm Gladwell or whatever. And we're really rehearsing, trying to find ourselves by imitating other people. But finally, we do start to speak in our own voice. And that, to me, is what we were put on this planet to do. Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. Stephen Pressfield's War of Art is a perennial bestseller, and I agree. If you haven't read it, read it, even hitting pause on this recording now. Before reading it, I could not have imagined someone writing a book like it. It's helped countless people start acting on passions, including me. If you have read it, you're in for a treat with this conversation. After stopping recording, he said how he shared new things on this podcast and complimented me on the genuineness and authenticity, which warmed my heart. I don't have to tell you. I also commented in our conversation on how the resistance that he described, generally to the individual on the verge of creating, translates almost perfectly to two places. The first is one I think he meant, the individual acting on his or her environmental values. Also, us in general, in our communities, as a nation, as a species, acting on our environmental values. You'll hear him comment, well, listen to hear his comments on that observation and why his response made me feel so honored, flattered, and motivated to follow up. You'll hear the project that I want to start working with him on. On top of that, there are other stories and observations beyond the book. So here's Stephen Pressfield. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Stephen Pressfield. Stephen, how are you doing? Okay, Josh. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. And I, preparing to speak with you, I feel like I don't like to ask people questions they've been asked a million times before. On the other hand, I think that you really love sharing what you share. And I'm curious, what keeps you out there sharing all of what you, what you share? Because I feel like you've, you must have answered a lot of questions before. It feels like what you share is so universal and so meaningful. Well, I, you know, I don't mind being asked questions I've been asked before. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of hard not to. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, don't don't worry about that. Josh. Just go ahead and ask whatever you want to ask. Okay. It, it, actually, I interviewed an astronaut once who was off in space, and I asked him at the end of the interview. I was like, I hope I didn't ask the same questions. He's like, everybody asks the same questions. It's part of my job. It's like that's what I have to do. Is the rest of my life is answer those questions. Actually, well, what does motivate you to share? To I mean, the book you have many books out there, and you still keep out there. And I, I can think of several different answers, but I'm kind of curious what ones apply for you. 
You mean Get why do I keep writing? Is that what you mean, Josh? Keep writing, keep going on podcasts, keep putting the messages out there. It's, you know, it's funny because it's, uh, you use the word share. And a lot of people do use that as if somebody that's a writer has some sort of a gift or some kind of a message or whatever it is that they, that they want to promulgate, you know, to give to people. But a lot of times, at least for me, it's really, I'm almost writing for myself in a way, you know? I'm sort of exploring ideas and trying to understand them by, by writing about them. So uh, I'm just kind of driven from one book to the next, you know, to keep putting something out. You know, it's like if I don't, I get in trouble. So in the sense, in that sense, I am kind of sharing, but mainly, like I say, I'm writing for myself. And it's sort of a bonus for me that people are getting something out of it. You know, I hope they do. But one of the things that you find as a writer, you probably know this yourself, Josh, is you put so much of what you put out there never gets seen, you know, or, you know, there's a famous story. I'll I'll bore you with a story here about a Broadway producer named Jed Harris, who was famous like in the 20s and 30s. He just had hit after hit after hit. And uh, he was being interviewed one time. And the interviewer said, Mr. Harris, how do you explain the flops? And he started laughing and he said, that's not the question. The question is, how do you explain the hits? In <laughs> other words, so much of what we do flops when it gets out there, you know, or does it, the message doesn't get through, you know? So I'm very glad when it does. I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but that's, that's what I have to say. I have more and more questions. The Is what you're doing now, Speaking to me right now, is that part, you mentioned writing. Is, is speaking also part of that? Is performing part of that? You know, it's, that's another, it's a great question. Um, when I first started trying to be a writer, which is many years ago, a writer did not have to promote their own stuff. You know, the publisher did that, you know, and the writer just, you know, wrote. But it's become, over the last 15 or 20 years, it's become absolutely necessary so that almost... Half my time, I would say, is trying to establish a presence out in the world and establish awareness of of what what I'm doing or what I have coming. So, yeah, it's just sort of a necessary part of, of being a writer, a filmmaker, you know, any any kind of uh, anybody in the arts these days just has to have a presence out there on the web. So, and I've resisted it for years. You know, I'm invited to be on podcasts just constantly. And I just go pass, 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 pass. And, um, but I've changed my mind over the last year. And uh, I've decided that I I really do have to, have to, have to do that. Just part of the game. I thought that um, you were going to say it's part of being a professional and showing up is, is like part of Stephen Pressfield pro is it, is part of, it is part of being a professional, you know? And also, you meet a lot of nice people, which is interesting. You make new friends, which is a real positive thing that I, that, uh, I hadn't expected. Yeah, I find that speaking in public, public performance feels to me like one of the great ways, up until a certain point in my life, it was one of the very most scary things I could imagine. But now it's become one of the things of where I can open up the most, where I can find myself the most, where I can discover myself. And, you know, your book, it's, does everybody read it and get, it feels so personal and so speaking to something that I've always 
felt but had never heard vocalized or, or seen on a page. And you write about being creative in many different ways, being a scientist or being an entrepreneur or being an artist. Does that speak to everyone or are some people, does it not speak to? It feels so universal, but I'm not sure if that was me or everyone. It does seem to speak to everyone, which really surprised me. It's like when I, when I originally wrote it, I thought it was only for writers. I thought it was only about facing the blank page and that nobody else would experience resistance or experience that sort of thing, that negative force inside them. But then I started getting emails and letters. Or in fact, well, my editor, who was also my business partner, Sean Coyne, when I was writing the book, he said, you got to expand it so it's not just for writers, you know? You know, I had a few things in there and I kind of did, but sort of not really believing it. You know, I thought, you know, that's some humoring Sean. But then I was amazed at the, the letters that I got from people. like, And I still don't understand some of them. Like, for instance, photographers. A lot of photographers have tremendous resistance. I get a lot of letters and stuff from actors, which I still don't quite understand, although I guess it's very scary being an actor and having to get up there. But And definitely from entrepreneurs or from, or from people who are starting nonprofits or who are doing like you, trying to work with the environment or trying to trying to do uh, you know something where they have to get out of their skin a little bit, out of their comfort zone a little bit. And so it does seem to be universal. And the other thing that's universal is that voice that we hear in our head, the voice of resistance, you know, you're no good, you're a loser, you've got nothing to contribute, all that sort of stuff. That seems to be universal too. So that that did surprise me. When I when I originally wrote the book, I thought. Am I the only one in the world who experiences this force of resistance? And it wouldn't have surprised me if that was true. But apparently it isn't. Apparently everybody experiences it. There are a lot of things that I read that I thought like, oh my God, other people have this too? Or, <laughs> and, and some things you wrote, I was just like, of course, like you nailed it. And it, one, one of my measures for a work of art, it's not the only measure, but one is if something tells me something that I always knew to be true, but had never heard said before, I identify that as a work of art. And it was like over and over again in that book, it was, uh, did you, how long did you research for it? I mean, I, to some extent your whole life, I'm sure, but it feels like if I sat down to think of those things, it would have, I, some of those things are thoughts that only come once every decade. And so I'm, I'm curious how they worked their way in, how you compiled it. Well, I sort of, here's the way it came about. And by the way, I'm reading a wonderful book now by Eric Hoffer called The Ordeal of Change, where I'm having that same experience. He writes these sentences where you go, holy shit, I, you know, I thought that my whole life, but nobody ever actually said, you know, or I've never heard it said. It's a wonderful book, The Ordeal of Change. But the way The War of Art came about was I found that, you know, being a professional writer and having a career, my friends or acquaintances would come to me and they would say, you know, I've got a book in me, you know, I want to write a book about this or this or my grandmother's life or whatever. And so I would sort of sit with them sometimes till like two in the morning, trying to kind of encourage them and psych them up and tell them that because they would be procrastinating, right? They'd be in the grip of resistance. They'd have a million excuses why they couldn't do it. So I would stay up with them and try to knock those excuses down. And I would tell them, you know, that there's this force out there and, you know, I feel it and you feel it. And, uh, of course, nobody paid any attention. Only one guy ever actually, but he wrote a wonderful book. But um, nobody else paid any attention to me whatsoever. 
but people kept asking me to talk to them. So finally, I just said, I had like a two-month break, and I said, I'm just going to write this down and make a book out of it, and then I'll just hand it to people. And they say to me, you know, talk to me. I'll say, here, read this. So to answer your question, I sort of did the whole book verbally over and over and over before I sat down to actually write it. When I wrote it, it just kind of boomed, just came, because I talk about it so much. I mean, it feels like there's, you must have caught there a couple of lifetimes of some of the things uh, or, or been a painter for a while or something like that. To look at you, you don't, you look like you, you, you lived a struggling artist life for a long time. I mean, you, you're broken and many times, it sounds like. Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that from interviews of you. You seem like the wisdom, usually it doesn't, how do I put it? You look pretty regular. <laughs> Is that, <laughs> I, hope, I hope that's come out Okay. You haven't like cut off your ear it's all, or it's you know. Front, Josh. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, these days, young people, because there's so much instant success out there. You know, Kim Kardashian does a sex video, and the next thing you know, she's a superstar. You know, or they have, you know, or people do, uh, you know, something on YouTube, and the next thing you know, they have 20 million followers. And people think, oh, it's it's instant. All I have to do is find a hack. And, you know, I'm going to succeed, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, you know, it takes a long time for anybody. I mean, it takes 10 years to become a brain surgeon. Why shouldn't it take, you know, 10 years to become a filmmaker or to become a video game maker or, to, you know, to, to get a, a nonprofit rolling or whatever? It takes a long time. It's hard. There's a lot of hard work in it. And, you know, nobody seems to believe that. Except those who love the work. And they're busy working, I guess, and they're not, they're not Which complaining. Which is kind of the secret of the whole thing, that the work is actually fun. And the work is the real reason to do any of it, you know, rather than the destination. You know, they always say it's the journey, not the destination. And, but it's really true. Yeah, I have a hard time people accepting that. You know, for my environmental stuff, I've been taking the, the recommendations from the scientists seriously. So I'm in my fifth year of not flying. I pick up at least one piece of garbage every day. I go out in the rain and pick up other people's litter. <laughs> it takes me over a year to fill up a load of garbage. I avoid packaged food, for example. Uh-huh. And everybody says, like, what's motivating you? Why do you do it? And I tell them, it's the joy. It's the connection, the community, this feeling of oneness that you get when you connect with everybody, when you take other people's considerations into account. And they always say, yeah, but really? What is it really? <laughs> and... It's like everyone, including myself up until I started, everyone expects it's going to be really hard. Everyone expects it's going to be horrible. It's going to be like this big burden. And then you do it. And maybe I just feel like an artist in doing it, but I feel like it's, it's wonderfully. I think you are an artist in doing it, Josh, because at least in terms of the theory of resistance with a capital R, Mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're moving from a lower level to a higher level, ethically and morally and, you know, communally. And so that is a form of art, I think. No, I don't remember you talking about different levels. Can you expand on that? Let's say you're, you're a crooked politician, mm-hmm. right? You're in it for the money. You're working scams, you know, behind the, you know, and you make a decision. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually live up to my, my oath to the Constitution. And I'm not going to engage in self-dealing or whatever it is, right? That's moving from a lower level, morally and ethically, to a higher level. And anyone that tries to do that will encounter resistance. You know, there will be that force in their head trying to stop them from doing that. 
That's it's like I would say in any form of art, if you say to yourself, I want to make a movie or I want to write a book or whatever from you're going from doing nothing to doing something that's moving from a lower level to a higher level. Yeah. Most of the time when I read your stuff and it's like, so do a lot of people just, you just kind of pick it up and read a couple of pages and then come back a month later and read it again. And most of the time I think of it in terms of motivating myself, finding something inside, like that inward, being able to get past resistance, connect with the muse, learn more about myself. A lot of what I do in environmental leadership is helping people. I believe that most people want to pollute less than they do. And they want to change stuff about themselves and everything you write about resistance. I believe you were talking about individuals and in themselves, but I can't help but also think culturally, that's what we're trying. Like, I think most people really want to cut back on the pollution and they anticipate that eating more fresh fruits and vegetables is just one example. As a, and instead of Doritos and Ben and Jerry's, they'll probably like it more. That resistance, I feel like is my working on that resistance, helping people face and overcome that resistance in terms of, and, and not just people, but cultural institutions. We as a, as, as a group get past that or face that resistance to act by our environmental values. Has anyone ever looked at it that way? Do people ever look at it as not just, you know, you were saying before, Josh, you know, what do I get out of putting myself out there and doing things like this? And one of the things I said, I said, was I make friends or whatever, but also I had not thought of that before what you just said. So you're educating me. That was like a great thing. I'd never thought that there is such a thing as cultural resistance, but I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's somehow it's a collective thing that probably comes from each individual's resistance. But you're right. There's institutional resistance, you know, within departments of the government, within, you know, uh, manufacturers of food, Archer Daniels Midland or whatever. There's institutional resistance against moving to a higher level. So that's great. Thank you for, uh, I'd never thought of that before. You're absolutely right. If I'm not flattering myself too much, I believe, I hope I don't sound too off, but I think it might be a gift to reread your book. I'm sure you've read it many times with the mindset of how does this apply to one of the greatest challenges we face is, you know, changing our behavior, acting on our environmental values. It's remarkable how well what you write about describes what I work with, with people to pollute less. Uh-huh. I mean, it's incredible. Are you working like individual by individual, Josh, or are you working with groups on that? I do both. Mostly I work with, when I'm on the podcast, most of my guests I work one-on-one with. I, I just, we do, we do this process that of walking through to share an environmental value and act on it. And I find that when that value comes out, you know, most of the time when I ask someone, what do you value with the environment? They'll say like, oh, I think about children or I think about future generations or I think about polar bears. But if I go back and forth enough times and I believe supporting them, something will come out that is, if they grew up near the ocean, then it's often an ocean related thing. If they grew up in the mountains, it's walking in the forests, Uh, but it's something very touching and very personal. And they may know that Bangladesh is, you know, is going to be half underwater soon. But that actually disconnects them from their actual personal lived experience of what their environmental experience was. When they get to that thing, the apple tree at the end of the block where they grew up that got cut down to become a, a parking lot or you know something like that, then they really love sharing more about it. And 
one of the things I took away from War of Art is that it seems like once the resistance is gone, or once you've overcome the resistance, I feel like you almost take for granted we all have, we are all struck by the muse. We all have an artist in us that we all, if just take away the resistance and that expression is going to be beautiful. I, I think I take that away. I feel like there's this very life-affirming, creative-affirming root of what brings you out. I think that's there environmentally too. Like, I think we just love apples and broccoli and going camping even more than Doritos and Ben and & Jerry's and going to Disney World. How did you get into this, this movement, uh, this, this cause originally, Josh? Well, I mean, there's some roots that I trace back to. I mean, one of the earliest things was when I was in third, fourth grade learning about the Constitution. And I learned that, I, I know this, I was just talking about this recently. Article 6 says that federal law, uh, state law is subject to federal law. Federal law is subject to the Constitution, which is the highest law in the land, but also treaties with foreign governments. And as a kid, I was thrown by this. Shouldn't our rules be the most important? Why something, someone else? And then over time, I learned that if I can make a, an agreement with you and then unilaterally just decide to drop it, you're not going to make an agreement with me. And this, I believe, is if, if I go all the way back to my stewardship roots, that lesson that I accidentally learned was a big one. Like the way I say it today is if I get home, no matter how hungry I am, feed the dogs first, then me. They depend on me. They can't help it. Uh-huh. So stewardship comes from there. Uh-huh. But more recently, there's things of like trying to experiment. Like the avoiding food packaging came from just seeing if I could, could I go for a week avoiding packaged food, just trying it out. And I tried it. And at first it was really hard. But then I learned how to boil beans on the stove. And then I learned how to make a stew. <laughs> and it's just, it's, I love it. I mean, uh-huh. if you're in New York City, come by and I'll give you some of my famous no packaging vegetable stew. <laughs> Is that where you are, New York City? Yeah. Where are you in the city? Greenwich Village. Ah, where in Greenwich Village? Greenwich Avenue and 10th Street. Oh, wow. Great. So no, outside the window. It, oh, come by anytime. You're oh, right. I, I will. Where are you? airplanes recently yeah. i'm in los angeles but uh, okay i used to live over on uh between uh seventh and eighth avenue on 15th street so oh. that's not that far away from you yeah it's very close yeah the stuff about resistance you said that you worked with people for years and years and you'd said it many many times before so when you came down to, when it came to writing it you could just write it yeah this was always one-on-one it was never never a group or anything like that and so I, I read it and think, how can I use this? How can I incorporate this to work with groups? Well, you've been working with your stuff longer than I have and much more intimately. And I wonder if, if it's not too soon to ask, do you think, does anything come to mind if you were working with a group or you were speaking to a large audience about overcoming resistance as a team or as an organization or as a nation or as a, as a world? Uh, I have not thought about that. You know, the, the thing about... This idea of resistance and of moving from a lower level to a higher level somehow to me is communicated absolutely best by a book because there's something about the privacy. You know, when you're reading something, you can be sitting on an airplane next to two people and they have no idea what you're reading, right? You're in you're in communication with the author and with what's on the page. And a lot of times I think some of the stuff that's on the pages of the war of art produces shame. In people when they read it, you know, 
you know, people will sort of see themselves and go, oh, my God, that's me. You know, I'm I've done that terrible stuff, too. You know, so I think the privacy between the covers of a book, it really works, I think, for communicating that message. Whereas I would really the few times that I've kind of talked to groups on this subject, it makes me a little sick to my stomach. You know, it's, it's almost like. Uh, what I'm going to say is going to sound bad here, but it's almost like what is on those pages is too sacred to be broadcast, you know, in like in a, like I've never done a TED talk on this and I never will do a TED talk on it, even though I think it's sort of exactly something because I think it just goes out there and because it's in words, spoken words instead of in a book, it cheapens it somehow. Maybe I'm crazy. But uh, I feel like the book or something like this, a podcast where people experience it one-to-one, you know, they're listening to it or they're watching it, that they can absorb it. So anyway, maybe it's just my own resistance, but I definitely don't want to speak to groups about groups or about individuals either. I think it's much better between the pages of a book or in a one-on-one thing like, a, like an audio book. Would you mind if people took your stuff and tried to see how it applied? In those areas? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't want to cheapen it, but I would love if I discovered a way of applying it that hadn't now, been done before. Here's the second thing, Josh. It's interesting if, like, if somebody other than me did that, that's great. But for me to do it, I don't know whether it smacks of self-promotion or something like that, but it's, there's something in me, and I've never really put my finger on it, that really recoils at that. Somehow it's okay for me to do it in a book or in an audio thing, but not as a, as a kind of a, I don't know, speech to people or something like that. On the other hand, there is a, there's a place in Brazil, there's a teacher in Brazil who works at a place called New Acropolis, which is kind of an online academy, I think, and has you know, tens of thousands of followers. She teaches the war of art. And I, I have no idea what she says because it's in Portuguese, but... I'm all in favor of somebody else doing that, but I wouldn't want to do it. Well, I'll update you if I come up with anything. All right. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. It's something you alluded to that you talked about or you wrote about how one of the things the artist fears is success. And success, it may lead you to new friends. Well, the, the fear is that you'll lose the existing friends. You don't, the opportunity is that you get new friends. And there's something about that part that I think that another big fear, I don't, maybe you mentioned this, but I forget, that I think we fear realizing we could have done this a long time ago, that we've been hiding ourselves from ourselves. And if I realize tomorrow that I could have done something 10 years ago, and I knew it, like I always see inside myself these fears and self-doubts and I'm self-sabotaging or something like that. And I let that win. 
and years go by and I'm afraid of facing that. I'm afraid of realizing I've been letting myself, not letting myself down, but I've been, I've been allowing something to. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Josh. It's like the theory of sunk costs, you know, mm-hmm. that you've, it's like a gambler that's put so much money down and keeps, you know, they've, and, and throwing good money after bad. It makes you want to keep throwing good money after bad because you don't want to admit, as you say, that all those years I could have done something different. I think you're right. There is a big fear of that, which is why it's so hard to get people to change or to get ourselves to change. Yeah. It's because <laughs> we're committed to this identity that we've had for so long. Yeah. Have you walked a lot of people through some amazing transformations? Do you mind sharing some, some Not really? No, things you know, but it all happens inside someone's head or our own heads, you know, and I, and I found when I try to do it, that the more I try to help, the less effective it is. I think because it's such a private thing that change from, as I say, in the war of art, from being an amateur to being a pro that flipping of the switch, you know, that I'm, I'm now going to take myself seriously. I'm really going to do it. I'm really going to act upon my dreams. It's a, it's a, such a deep internal decision. Like you say, you have to give up that person that you've been, you know, if you're going to make that, make that switch. And however many years you've been that person, those are those sunk costs that you have. It's really hard to let go of that. It's an internal decision. I've never been able to really to walk anybody through it. And every time I do, it's, I can't think of what the word is, but it's just a really wasted experience. And when I'm done with it, I think I am never going to do that again. Again, you know, like it blows up in your face. It, it just, it's like I say that the more you try to help, the more someone resists you, you know, you have to kind of let them alone. You know, it's like the, the old horse whisper thing where if you want the horse to come to you, you walk away from the horse and then the horse will follow you, you know. But if you're, if you go toward the horse saying, come here, come here, come here, the horse will back off, you know. Do you feel tempted like you want to do that? Or, I mean, Yes. I mean, like when I would sit up with my friends till late at night, you know, I was like, I was like a preacher exhorting them, you know, you know, practically slapping them across the face, you know, wake up, you know, do it. You could do it, trying to encourage them. And it would never work. It never worked. You know, people would say, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You're Thank you so much. Oh, this is great. I'm starting tomorrow. Then, you know, I talked to them three months later. They've never done anything. So now you're making me think of, of, People come to me and think, hey, Josh, how can I reduce my garbage? How can I reduce my carbon output and things like that? And I, I try to help them and maybe the thing to do. And, and then three months later, they're like, I'm going to get started real soon now. <laughs> yeah. You know, in a way, to get turn this into politics a little bit, a lot of times the liberal side, the left-leaning side, does that sort of thing that you and I are doing, trying to encourage people to, to do something, you know, elevated, you know? Think more about the environment, you know, think more about racial injustice, work more to help, you know, your, your brothers and sisters, da, 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 da. and people just don't respond positively to that. You know, they they may say they're going to do it. They'll give lip service to it. But then, like you say, you come back three months later and nothing's happened. It's it's, it's a thankless. That's the word I was looking for. Trying to make somebody change. I mean, it's, it's, it's a thankless task, I found. It's so hard to make ourselves change. You know, so hard to even, you know, to, to 
like you said, you know, to cook peas, you know, uh, without packaging. You know, it's so hard to do that. I, think I, I can just imagine what you went through in your mind to like make that step. You know, it seems so simple, but it probably was hard. You ran into a lot of resistance, I would bet. Oh, I can tell you that I had the idea to challenge myself to go for a week without packaged food. Six months later, I began that week. Yeah. And that six months was just full of, the way I put it, it was, look, I got a lot of, a lot of advanced degrees. I can analyze, I can plan with the best of them. <laughs> and I was going to figure out what to do day one, day two, day three, day four. You know what makes, you know what works better? What works better? Being hungry, going to the store and you're like, well, I guess it's broccoli then because that's not packaged. And then suddenly it all comes together and it works. Yeah. So that's, it's weird. The things that resistance applies to, you know, I never thought about green beans or peas or broccoli, but it's true. I know if I made that vow to myself, okay, I would have tremendous resistance to go for a week without packaged food. It would take, and like you, it would take me six months and finally I would do it just when I was hungry. That's, that's how, that's how it happened. That's very gratifying to hear. <laughs> so it makes me feel understood. Do you get a lot of letters from people saying, like, I interviewed Seth Godin for this podcast and I was at his place and he has huge piles of, of like thank you notes and so forth. And I feel like you've inspired a lot of people and you must hear back from a lot of them. Yeah, I do. I get a lot, I get a lot of stuff, you know, maybe, you know, not, not bucket loads, but you know, maybe three, four emails a day. So it comes out to maybe a thousand a year or something like that. And over, you know, it's been like 18 years, I think since the book came out. So yeah, I got a lot of stuff. I know the work is its own reward. That must feel pretty good too, to get that feeling from others. Yeah, it does. It does feel good. You know, particularly when somebody says, I made a movie and it was because of because of you, you know? The principles that you put in that book helped me get over my own internal resistance. Um, so yeah, that does feel good. Cool. And a lot, of, a lot of what you talk about, to me, is in my words, is mastery. When you, when you really master something and it becomes something that you can do second nature, it feels like you're just increasingly expressing yourself, just freely being yourself. And it comes out. And I feel like the closer I get to it, the farther off it goes. I mean, I'm always learning and always growing. Is that your case as well? Mastery is something that I, I struggle with in figuring out. Well, what I, I wouldn't... Let me see if I can if I understand what you're saying, Josh. I mean, I, I don't know if I would use the word mastery mm-hmm. because I think you never master anything. And anytime you think you have, like you say, you're you, you're humbled completely the next minute. Mm-hmm. But I do think it is about finding your own voice, you know, and and speaking your own, you know, being who you really are. And that is a constant that's very rewarding and it feels great when you can do it. And even in the moment, as we're talking now, I mean, I'm trying to really speak from the heart, you know, and really not rehearse anything or anything like that. So that does recede, doesn't so much recede as the more you become, the more you come from your own self and your own true being, the more of yourself you discover and the more, the more there is to learn. So, but I, I think really that's what life is about at least on an, on an individual level, you know, trying because we, we start out when we're young imitating other people. And we think, oh, if I could only shoot a jump shot like Michael Jordan, or if I could only speak like Malcolm Gladwell or whatever, you know, we have, and, and we're really rehearsing, trying to find ourselves by imitating other people. 
But finally, you know, we do start to speak in our own voice. And that, to me, is what we were put on this planet to do. You know, I'm a believer that we, we come into this world already as a, as a personality, you know, and already with a point of view and a sense of humor and all that. And our, our job here is to, is to find out what that is, who we really are, and then become that. You know, not be afraid to, to become that. And it usually there is, there is fear involved. There is fear of if I really say what I really think, if I really am who I really am, are people going to, you know, reject me? And, of course, the, the opposite always happens when you really do it. That's when people go, ah, that guy's really speaking from his heart, and they respond to that. But it's, there's a lot of fear involved. That's exactly what I was looking I – mean, I feel like that's – I feel like what you shared there is what drove you to share War of Art. And I'm glad you just repeated it. I mean, that – journey to become more authentic, more genuine, more ourselves, less inhibited. I'm not sure if this is the words that you would use, but yeah, I would use those words. <laughs> yeah. That is one of the great journeys of life. One of the great struggles, challenge, struggle. And I don't mean in a, in a like suffering way. It just feels like that's why I reread your stuff is because it unleashes that it liberates. And yeah. I'm going to go, I'll give you a little rant here, Josh, that I just occurred uh-huh. to me as we're talking. And maybe completely off track here. You were talking before about, did I ever feel like dealing with resistance in groups, with collective, a collective form of resistance? And I told you, I'd never even thought of that before. But as we're talking here, there's a, there's a book of mine that I, that I wrote, a novel called Last of the Amazons. And it's a, it's a historical fiction about the ancient warrior women you know, the, from the, you know, around 1200 BC. And I remember thinking, I'll give you kind of the long version of this. When I, this, the group that I'm going to talk about is women. When I look at women as a collective thing, contemporary women, mm-hmm. I feel like they are not really, they're, they are have a product of the patriarchy in a bad way, in a negative way. When I see and I, I feel like women as, as a collective could be so much more than they are. And in this book, Last of the Amazons, although I didn't turn out to start out to do it this way, that was sort of what I was trying to say. And I, when I, when I think about the ancient Amazons, what I think about, maybe I'm bored, even I'm going to keep going. I'm very interested. If you think about, a woman's place, a woman's place in a patriarchy where men control everything, you know, and particularly when men are physically stronger than women and can impose their will on them physically if they if they want to, but the culture itself imposes their will on it, then women have to become, I think, they, one thing that they, they try to do to gain any power at all is to sexualize themselves, you know, to gain power against the patriarchy and the men that are exploiting them. And, and there are many other ways, you know, to become a mom and to, and to live in that role and so on and so forth. But what appealed to me about the ancient Amazons and the idea that they were, quote unquote, women the equal of men physically, you know, that they on horseback using whatever weapons they had, that they could hold their own with men. Then I sort of asked myself, well, what would a woman be like, you know, if she didn't have this the patriarchy, you know, holding her down, you know? And in, in that case, 
this culture that I sort of imagined in this book of Amazon women, of warrior women, was a really interesting process for me because it was a whole other kind of woman that we don't see today, you know? And um, every now and then, I don't get too many of these, but I get letters from women who've read the book and they say, wow, that is exactly what I wish I could become in this, or I am, you know, I'm doing CrossFit, I'm doing this or that, or the other thing, you know? So um, that was the only time, I think, Josh, you're getting this out of me, I've never thought about this before, uh-huh. where I really have tried to sort of address a collective thing. I don't know if I'm articulating this well, but uh, I do feel that women, contemporary women, as, as a class, as a group, could be so much more than they are and so much more interesting and free and really be, be coming from themselves, as we were just talking about, as women, if somehow they could break out of this oppression under, under the patriarchy, which is a, a terrible crime, you know? It's like a colonizer over a colonized, you know? Or a dominating class over a, a subjected class. Anyway, that's my rant on that. It makes me think of, of you not being a woman yourself. You, to some extent, you know what it's like to be in some ways, kept down. I'm sure that's happened to you in, in various places in life. But it makes me think of the research that you must have done or might have done to talk to women to find out what is there that is resisted or is not coming out that I would imagine, I don't know, it makes me think of Robert Caro and hearing about he, him doing his research with the people who knew Johnson and how he would live with them and get things out of them. Actually, if, that book, I didn't do any research at all. I just used my imagination and just tried. But, you know, the environment is another oppressed element, you know, that is also being dominated by the patriarchy and, you know, the nature herself, you know, the oceans, as you well know, you know, that is another colonized and and tyrannized entity that you're fighting on behalf of. And hopefully everybody that's listening is fighting on behalf of. But that's a really colonized and dominated entity yeah it has no voice it can't speak for itself i'm making a mental note to uh i don't know if i'll be able to get to this because there's all these other things and i didn't think of it until this conversation right here right now but to maybe play play around with a few chapters of yours and and put them into a new language for environmental action and see if if they are just as poignant for a different audience and i would send them back to you and see what you thought okay that's that's great you know I'm going to tell you one story. I'm just, I'm just coming off the top of my head here. Have you ever heard of a, a guy named John Trudell, a Native American poet? He died a couple of years ago. Have you ever heard of him, John Trudell? I don't think so. I hope I don't look bad. But yeah. Great, wonderful uh, guy. And I, one time I saw him. This is an environmental story. Uh-huh. I saw him in Griffith Park. He was, he was speaking. It was a you know, big event, right? And um, there were people all gathered around. He was under a tree. And we were, a bunch of us would gather around listening to him speak. And he said, he pointed out a couple of, you know, they were basically, we were all kind of hippies, you know, in the, in the, on the grass, you know. And, but there were a few guys in businesses and neckties. And John Trudell said, pointed him out, he said, you see these guys here? These are FBI guys. He said, they follow me everywhere I go. And they write down everything I say. And the reason they follow me is because they think I'm a communist. He says, let me tell you how I feel about that. To me, capitalism and communism are the exact same thing, and I hate them both because they both believe in 
exploiting, creating a class of workers that they then exploit. But more than that, they exploit the earth. They extract minerals from it. They destroy it. They pollute it. He said, I'm coming from a completely different place. He's a Native American. He said, well, the earth is my mother. And I see that, you know, I, my job here is to be a steward of the earth. So when you look at these FBI guys, they think I'm a communist. They're completely wrong. They don't have a clue in the world what I'm talking about. And, you know, and I hope you do. He is saying to the rest of us. I just thought that that really kind of hit me when he said it. And um, so I throw that out to you just as a, a story of a, of a guy, John Trudell. So I would look him up and I, I'm going to close on that story partly because it's from you and it's about what I think the audience here really likes hearing about. Although I do like to ask a last question. Is there anything I didn't think to ask or anything you'd like to say directly to listeners? Um, no, because you know, this is like, I'm tempted to sort of exhort people to say, you uh-huh. know, whatever you're in, rise them up, but you know, nobody's going to listen to it anyway. So I'm just, I just say to you, Josh, thanks for having me. I hope that uh, our talk here has been helpful to somebody in some way or other. Me too. I think that's as authentic as an answer as, as I've ever gotten from anyone. So, uh, Stephen Pressfield, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Josh. What a friendly guy. So accessible. We spoke a bit after stopping recording. I asked him about a written piece I'm working on that I feel expresses myself well and will serve the world, but that a lot of people object to reading early versions of it. It feels great to hear from someone who has inspired so many to weather those risks and to be true to yourself. So resistance looms large nonetheless on working on this project that I'm talking about. In any case, I don't recommend that many books, but I recommend War of Art. I'd say why, but that really just cannot put the book into words to say what about it I like so much. It speaks truth, an artistic truth. It encourages. And I just could not imagine writing a book like that myself. I couldn't imagine seeing it except that I read it. So I recommend it. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 